Look with me at our passage today as we continue in 1 John. We, we are in chapter 5. If you're new to Holy Scripture, then you'll find 1 John the very back of your Bible. And we're going to be in verse 9 through 12 today in a sermon that I've titled The Testimony of the Gospel. Look with me at our passage, 1 John 5, 9 through 12. John says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Eight times in this section, John makes reference to testimony. A testimony is the truthful account of what a witness has seen or experienced. It is someone who testifies what happened. They can only do this because they were there. Because they experienced it. Because they actually know as, to po- as opposed to just what they might have heard through hearsay. So often you hear in courtrooms that uh, a lawyer will, will call for hearsay to, to, to strike from the record the testimony that was just given. Because we want actual testimony of what happened for those who know. In the prior passage that we studied last week, verse 6 through 8, we heard John bring forth the testimony of three. The water, symbolizing Jesus' life and ministry. The blood, symbolizing Jesus' substitutional sacrifice of atonement on the cross. And the Holy Spirit, who conveys, convicts, and concretes the absolute truth of God in the hearts of the redeemed. Today, in verse 9-12, through 12, John turns to the testimony of the Father being the greatest testimony of all. He starts by comparing the Father's testimony to the testimony of man. Look with me at our first verse, verse 9. In, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. John aims to take us to a higher level of confidence to take as hearers the the beloved children of God those who've been redeemed and given saving faith in Christ he's trying to encourage them amidst false teaching amidst deceivers people who are anti-Christ in that community who who are bringing falsehood he's constantly in this letter trying to reorient them to truth um, and and, and love and, and certainty in the actual truths of God and so he's looking to, to firm that up. The sworn testimony of a person is worth believing. But it is not as great as believing in the testimony of the one true God. The testimony of the Father, God the Father, is greater because He is greater. 
Jesus makes this very point of emphasis himself in the, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, 31 through 37. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus is highlighting a couple things here. In this first part, he's really bringing forth the, the testimony that man gives. Specifically, in this case, he's speaking of John the Baptist, his forerunner, who announced him as being good and worth rejoicing in. He says that in the last verse I just read. He, speaking of John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. John the Baptist was Jesus' announcer. Right? We know this all the way going back to the narrative of Jesus' birth and John being born in Elizabeth, conceived in Elizabeth, and, and it would have this amazing ministry of being the one to announce that God's promised Messiah was here. All those generations waiting for that. In, in the Gospel of John, towards the beginning of the New Testament, John's Gospel testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, chapter 1, verse 34, John the Baptist says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There it is. There is, there is John's testimony. His most important task in all of his life was to get to testify of who the promised Messiah was and that he had arrived. What an assignment. When you think of the fact that every generation of man from the beginning was waiting for the promised Redeemer's arrival. And John's testimony is that he's here. What a game-changing testimony he got to bring forth. Listen to how John speaks. John, the author of John's Gospel, the author of the letter we're studying here now, how he speaks of John the Baptist's testimony. John talks about it this way in chapter 1, John 1, 6-8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So this is wonderful imagery and and. and really power that's given to who Jesus is as the light that comes into the darkness to bring life. So this is imagery that John uses a lot in his gospel. And now we see reference to it uh, in Jesus' words, right? That's what Jesus just said about John the Baptist, that he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. In the, in the testimony he gave unto the light, the light of Christ. Some of you might remember a song we sang growing up in Sunday school. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. 
Right? That's, that's the testimony of the gospel being testified of, being brought forth. I'm not going to keep it to myself. I'm not going to put it under a basket. I'm going to let it shine. Church, all of us who have been born of God and given saving faith in Jesus have been forgiven of our sin, transformed, spiritually enlightened to, to know God, to, to obey God, to live for God, and to testify of the gospel of Jesus. In this, these days he gives us after our salvation until he takes us home, our primary assignment is to be a light of the gospel in this dark world. To let our light shine. The light of Christ that's illuminated us. Jesus spoke this way to the disciples in Matthew 5, 14-16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Just like I implored us all at the conclusion of last week's sermon, we must testify. We must let our light shine before man. This is our mission. This is our priority in this life. We who are Christ witnesses have our testimony. We don't have it secondhand. We have it directly. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come on board to illuminate our lives spiritually, to give us saving faith, ears to hear, eyes to see literally transformed by the gospel. We have that gospel testimony to share. And Christ commissions us in Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Praise God for how He has used so many to testify. Each one of us who are saved have heard the testimony of the gospel that's been proclaimed by someone. Scripture tells us that God uses that general call of the gospel, that general announcement of the gospel, whether it be in a personal testimony or in the preaching of the gospel, to the public or in a church setting, that general call God uses, the testimony of the gospel through the saved, He uses it then to make effective His call, His work, on the heart of the elect in His perfect time to give them saving faith, to give them new birth, to give them belief, repentance and belief. Praise God for the testimony of men. The testimony of the gospel that we have heard, that we have believed. But John is saying there's a testimony that's greater. It's not, testimony of man is good, it's helpful, but it's not best. Jesus 
speaks to, to the, in this same way, in that passage I was reading to you in John 5, 36-37, he continues, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. The Father gave testimony. This is the Son. If you can call any witness to the stand to hear their testimony, there is no one better than the one who knows all and who is all absolute truth, God himself. David says about God, the sum of your word is truth. Psalm 119, 160. God is truth. So back to our verse 9, 1 John 5, 9. If we receive the testimony of men, which we've done, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. We have joyfully received the testimony of our forefathers, forerunners of the faith. We have confidently received the testimony of many along the road of our lives. And we take the testimony of valid witnesses to be a critical way that we know what really happened. It's why it's much of how we validate truth in our judicial system today still. The, the testimony, especially the, the testimony of, of many. John's point is if we've received the testimony of men, then we surely should receive the testimony of God who is far greater and more trustworthy and perfect in His knowledge than any man. This might seem overly simple, but we have to understand, we're going to see this as we work through the passage, what has happened and what John is pointing out is there are many who have called foul the testimony of God, making him out to be a liar. And this cannot be. The testimony of Jesus' life represented by the water, as we studied last week, to the testimony of, of his substitutional death in the place of many, uh, symbolized by the blood, that the truth-revealing work of the Holy Spirit are all confirmed in the testimony of the Father concerning his eternal beloved Son. Right? At the end of verse 8, we, we heard John say these three agree. Well, now he's going further. He's all of the trinities involved, he's including the Father now. The Father has public square proclamation of His testimony about the Son at the baptism of Jesus. I read this last week, I'll read it to you again. Matthew three, sixteen through 17 When Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Praise God for His testimony, for His truthful affirmation of who Jesus really is. Again, in this day, as John's writing this letter, there are some who are saying, Yeah, this guy named Jesus lived. We acknowledge His ministry but he didn't die as a Messiah. And 
or, or, or they were saying he's not eternally God. All these critical doctrines of Christ were, were lied about. They were, they were manipulated. We must have the, the truth, the truthful testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done. Now in verse 10, John turns to the issue of whether you accept or reject God's testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. Look with me. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Let's talk about that part first. When John says, has the testimony in himself, this is referring to what is called the testimonium spiritus sancti interim. The inter-witness of the Holy Spirit. What God has affirmed about Christ in the public square is affirmed in the inner person of every redeemed person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is truly a most special reality for all who are given saving faith in Jesus alone. The Holy Spirit is within us. This this supernatural act of God is the fuel that lights the spiritual fire of our belief in Jesus. We do not believe, we do not trust our entire lives to Christ without the Holy Spirit bearing witness in our spirit. Listen to how this is spoken of throughout the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 8.16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul says in Romans 9.1, a few verses later, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. John himself, earlier in our very letter, 1 John chapter 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is here that we must pause, church, and appreciate and be astounded at God's will and work to give many of us new birth. To understand the absolute necessity for regeneration, for new birth, is the work of the Holy Spirit. If anyone is going to believe in Jesus with all of their lives. Because without the Spirit's reviving work in a person, we are dead in sin. We are unable to know God, to seek God, to please God. The spiritual corpse does not do anything spiritually good. It must be given life, spiritual life. That is the indwelling of the Spirit. That is the invigoration of the Spirit in us. Now, 
Romans 8, 7 through 8, Paul says clearly, the mind that is set on the flesh, meaning there's no spirit, it's just fleshly. It says that mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus also teaches that it is impossible for man to turn to God without God's gracious supernatural intervention. John chapter 6, 44. No one can come to me, he says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's that effective call, that work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says it this way in Matthew eleven twenty seven: All things that have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The work of God to move into what is dead, to invigorate with the Holy Spirit. Maybe the most helpful and clear proclamation of this is Jesus' words in John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What is spiritually dead must be made spiritually alive. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The testimonium spiritus sancti interim. The inner testimony of the Holy Spirit within us. 1 John 5.10 Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. You don't believe in Jesus unless the Spirit has gone to work in you. Unless the Spirit is on board. Next, John refers to those who lack the Holy Spirit's illumination. They remain in unbelief in the testimony of Jesus. They are the ones who do not believe in Christ. The second part of verse 10. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. First and foremost, church, we must agree, God cannot lie. If he was guilty of lying, he would not be holy. God's word is most clear. God cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie. He's not fleshly. Not given to the flesh. No, he is holy. The problem is for all those who do not believe God's testimony that Jesus is the Christ, is the eternal Son, in their disbelief, in the denying of God's testimony, they then therefore proclaim God as a liar. Their, their testimony is that what God says is not true. Understand, that is no small indictment of God. Again, especially when you understand who that indictment is made against. 
To do this is to bring charge of wrongdoing, of deception, of manipulation, of sin. It's a charge of wickedness to the only one who is nothing but holy and perfect and true, God himself. This is the fifth time in John's letter that he accuses his opponents, the Antichrist, the false teachers, of either being a liar or of making God out to be a liar. Chapter 110, 2, 4, 2, 22, 4, 20, and here in 5, 10. To lie is to break one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Late theologian Pastor John Gill defines it this way, a lie is to speak that which is false, to speak that which is contrary to truth. To withhold belief in the light or the face of God's self-testimony, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, to withhold belief in that is the utmost damning thing. See, all too often we get really caught up in evaluating our lives or each other's lives on on how it looks like they're performing in this life. And yet, what we will be most accountable for on Judgment Day is what we did with God. What our testimony was about Him. What our position was before Him. That He is the standard that we are his creation. All of this is his to govern. And, and, and the person who says, I just don't want to accept that, is a person who is just filled to the brim with arrogance. That, that one who is created would declare I have a better understanding about how all this works than the Creator. To accuse God of deception or sin is gross sin itself. For God is holy in all that He is and all that He does. Look with me now at verse 11. First John 5, 11, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. This is a great verse. I want to encourage you, if you're a highlighter or a note taker, you need to highlight this verse 11. John 5, 11, Because here is one of these places where we have just a sweet synopsis of the Gospel. The Gospel testimony. Uh, He starts with, and this is the testimony. As Christians, our greatest testimony is not about anything we've done. The testimony. This is the testimony. 
This is our greatest testimony. Uh, No matter your accomplishments, no matter how national, no matter how public, no matter how grand, no matter how game-changing for the temporary world your life has been, your greatest testimony is of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and God, the Holy God's work in your life to redeem you. God humbled himself to take on flesh, to die in our place, so that we could be ransomed from the penalty of our sin and reconciled to the holy and glorious God now and forever. Nothing you and I will ever do will ever touch that. That is greater. The word gospel comes from the Greek term euangelion. Evangel. And evangel was... News of a great historic event, such as a a huge victory in war, the rising up of a king. But it wasn't just news. It was news that when you heard it, you couldn't just move on. It was news that changed the listener's condition. It required a response. It, It was that big of news. All those who are saved by Christ are witnesses of Christ. We are the ones who give gospel testimony. We are the evangels. This is our most important testimony. It is the most important thing we have to say. The world gets frustrated at this. You'll see some faithful Christians once in a, once in a while be, be, have the mic put in front of their face in a very grand moment in their life. And many times faithful believers, although what they just accomplished was massive, they don't want to talk about that. They want to give testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because you're putting a mic in front of my face to share, and I don't want to share about how I just put the ball in the goal or how my record sales or business sales reach these high. No, what I want to tell you about is something way greater than that. You're going to give me 30 seconds on this mic. Let me tell you about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And you watch unbelievers just get so infuriated with this. What is the gospel? Do you have a a clear, right understanding of it? You need to. You need to not bobble and boggle if asked that question. Uh, One helpful place you have to study, even to memorize, is out of our Word of Truth Catechism, question 68. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news, good news, of the grace and the power of God It's news about what God has done to redeem undeserving sinners. The gospel must include our guilt and sin, our need for a Savior, to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect sinless life, substitutional, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. The gospel testimony needs to include testimony of the life, 
without sin, substitutional death in the place of sinners, and victory over death in the grave, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what does that mean? It, for these sinners who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, from the eternal wrath they deserved, and they are reconciled to an eternally secure relationship with God. So if you struggle to, to really have a good, clear answer, all of you are capable of memorizing this. And then I would even encourage you of even slowing down to just pick the pieces of it apart. Go back and listen to the audio when our teaching team taught on this question and how they took time that night to pick the pieces apart. You understand how, how, how to explain the, the pieces that are here. And if you, you can, then you've got a good answer. This is what's derived from, from Scripture. What is the gospel? That we'd know it. That we'd answer that boldly, joyfully. You're going to give me an opportunity to testify? I want it. Right? Christian, you need to want to testify. Someone's going to give you a moment in a grocery store or a family gathering or a, a, at work or at school. You're given an opportunity to testify. You take it. You send a text to wherever you're headed next and say, I'm going to be late. I'm being given an opportunity in this moment to testify Jesus. To testify the gospel. And this is the testimony. John continues in verse 11, that God gave us, gave us something. Ultimately gives us eternal life. We'll get to that in a moment. God gave a most gracious gift. A great gift. The greatest gift we've ever been given. Someone says, Look, tell me your story. I want to tell you about the greatest gift I've ever been given. And, and my story is about the mountain bike my parents surprised me with when I was going into junior high. Lame. Nintendo, the year it came, tucked behind the TV after I thought I didn't get it. Lame. Even great things, the gift of a wife, of, of children, compared to this, compared to it, is lame. Because it pales in comparison. Greatest gift I've ever been given. The grace of God on a wicked, undeserving sinner like me. Paul speaks to it famously in another verse that has great synopsis of the gospel testimony. Another one I would encourage you to highlight and memorize. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have earned an eternal wage of death. 
because of our sin. But God gave many a free gift. And it's not like the free gift you get at the hotel room or at the company party. It is the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're hopeless captives who are spiritually dead in our sin. This is what makes God's gift of grace so utterly game-changing. What is saving grace? Why is it the greatest gift ever given? Definition of grace, simple definition is it's unmerited favor. It's an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. The Word of Truth Catechism tells us saving grace is God's love, forgiveness, and redemption freely and effectively given in Jesus to the elect who are undeserving of this. Question 80. First and foremost, you must understand to fully appreciate God's gift of saving grace. His grace. It is a gift from God that only God can give. And for grace to truly be grace, two things must be true. Its recipients must not be deserving of it. And its giver must not be obligated to give it. Or it fails to be grace. God is not obligated to give us saving grace. If you think a good God is obligated to save wicked, guilty sinners, you don't understand grace. His obligation, because He is holy and perfect and just, is to give His justice, His judgment, on guilty sinners to put his wrath on us and fallen man is not deserving to receive God's saving grace again we deserve his judgment just like your loved one that's at court or your loved one who is offended or or raped or murdered and and the the person who did that gross thing is is in court you want the judge to judge justly, to give judgment of what that person is due for their crime, for their offense, for their sin. This is what we're due. Many people uh, arrogantly, naively think God owes mankind a chance at heaven. God doesn't owe sinful man that. He owes him something. But I assure you, it's not forgiveness and it's not heaven. He owes sinful man his righteous, eternal wrath. Because that's what our unrepentant sin earns. That's what I am due. That's the wage have earned. See that God is not obligated to be gracious. If he was, then grace is no longer grace. Paul makes this point in Romans 11.6. 6. 
if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. If we had something that earned us, it wouldn't be grace anymore. Who decides to give grace? God does. It's God's grace. It's only His to give. Only when we rightly see that none of us, not your favorite child, not your sweet old grandma, deserve God's grace, only then do you begin to see just how amazing that grace is when given to someone. That they would have faith in Jesus and be saved. It is a gift like no other. When we begin to get this church, it leaves us with nothing but a desire to worship Him. For His glorious grace. It leaves us with a desire to testify of what He's done to others. John clarifies what God has given us in His grace. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. John uses the term life 36 times in his gospel, 13 times in his letters that we're studying, 17 times in the book of Revelation at the end. John's emphasis when he uses this word is most often not physical life, as we often refer to life, but it is spiritual life. It is eternal life. John said it well, John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that I may have, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Came that they, speaking of people who are living physically, that they may have a gift, life, abundant, eternal life. This is not some kind of promise that you that if you trust Jesus, you'll get hooked up with a great life in the here and now. No, no, it's way better than that. What sinful prosperity gospel preachers and, and witnesses are selling is a cheap counterfeit. It's, it's, it's something that will break. It looks really fancy. You think it's really great and it doesn't last. That's because prosperity in that form is only for the temporary. It looks like a rad gift, but it doesn't last. The abundant life that only Christ gives is for eternity. And that is long. That is lengthy. In case you're wondering, it's really, 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 really long. Really, really, really. You think these days you're living in now are long? No, they're not. It's incredibly minuscule. It's incredibly short. It's incredibly fundamentally momentary compared to the length of eternity. I've used this illustration before, but it's worth sharing with you again to give you a visual of this have here a long extension cord working itself around the room and I put bright green tape on the end of it 
The green tape is the length of your physical life. Whatever that is for you. Maybe 60, maybe 70, maybe 80. Some of you have hit triple digits. Amazing. Long life. 100 years. This is your physical life right there. So now look with, look with me at... I'm already doubled it. Look, look with me at the testimony. At, try to look at eternity. It, so the people sitting over there can just see it's significant, abundantly, overwhelmingly, incomprehensibly longer. As you take that in for a moment and just consider the visual, consider the reality that you will either, in all of this eternity, suffer under God's wrath in eternal death. The wage you earned by remaining Lord of your own life, remaining unrepentant of your sin, here. Or, you will feast with God in glory for eternity because by His grace He awakened your dead heart, the invigoration of the Holy Spirit, and you saw your sin and you confessed it and you trusted your life to Jesus and you were saved. Died to self and now live to Christ. Jesus then took your sin on him, put his righteousness on you. So the Holy God says, you're, you're mine forever. Th- this is your life, physical life, what you're in right now, compared to eternity. The problem is for so many of you, you're really focused a lot of your days lately, or the whole thing, right here. You're really invested in, in, in this. You're working really hard right here so that this can be really awesome. And completely dismissing the vastness and the weight of eternity. Too many of your days, your focus, your treasure is about the temporary. That will burn, it will end, it will die, it will break, it will run out. You think, I'm going to work really hard, I'm going to save so I, so I can really enjoy this part. But, but what about all this? That, to exchange this for this is a bad exchange. For those who have trusted Jesus, for those who belong to Jesus, those who believe God's testimony concerning Jesus, and yet, for you, this is really hard. This is really heavy. It's filled with a lot of tears. 
a lot of struggle, a lot of suffering, a lot of loss, a lot of injustices. You must see how momentary it is in light of the weight and the deep, incomparable value of the glory and the joy you will know in eternity with God. Not only for the sake of your own soul, but for the sake of your testimony here. Jesus promised for those who trust in him alone and what they will receive in eternity compared to what they have had in the temporary. I love his words. John 4.14 Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He speaks this way again in John 6, 35-40. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I, I said to you that you have seen me and yet don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen? All of this is helping us celebrate the reality of eternal life in Christ. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. What about John 3.16? Think of eternal life. You think of that famous verse. Sadly, many use that most famous verse as a form of invitation in the ways that the gospel has been tainted in, in these recent generations. No, no, no. It's not how it's used. It's not used as invitation. Jesus, in the context of, of John 3, John, Jesus speaks John 3.16 by way of proclamation. It is a testimony of those who are truly and fully believing into Christ for salvation. For God loved, the testimony is this, God loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, the Greek there, all those who are, are believing into Him will not perish, but have eternal life. We can long for and focus and cling and work to build this up and really make this some, some super sweet stuff. Or we can long for and focus and cling to and work on what God is preparing for us for eternity, for those who love Him. Eternity and glory with God. And you might be wondering, what will eternal life look like for those who trust in Him? Word of Truth Catechism says it this way, question 122. Eternal life will be a more intimate communion with God. We will be free from sin, evil, sickness, suffering, and death. We will be in the Lord's presence and glorifying Him for all eternity. It is better than we can even imagine. I love that last phrase. It's so good, I can't even dream how good it's going to be. 
1 Corinthians 2, 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Look at the last part of verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave us. Eternal life. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The only way to eternal life is Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John and Paul are emphasizing the same essential doctrine that we have salvation in Christ alone. Jesus said it most clearly, John 14, 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. Jesus. Are other man-made religions valid? No, they are not. Because they are not the one way to God. Jesus. You say, man, that's an arrogant thing. Yeah, that's, not my, that's not my thing. That's Jesus' thing. That's Jesus' truth. Jesus is the key to it all. Not just believing about Him, but believing into Him. The unbeliever, and even the demons, can properly testify who Jesus is. They they believe about Him. They know a lot about Him. But to know about Him is not enough. The saved Christian testifies that they have given their lives to Christ. This is the in Christ part. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. The Greek word here for in is is fixed, positioned in the Son. Paul describes it well in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So I ask you, have you died to yourself? To your, to your reign, your rightness, your rule, And you've given your entire life to Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian. That Christ lives in and through you. It is for Christ you live. It's for Christ you woke up. It's for Christ you ate your Wheaties. It's for Christ you drove your car. It's for Christ you work your day. It's for Christ you raise your kids. It's for Christ we live. We who belong to Him. And so John recaps it this way in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Eternal life. Spiritual life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It is that simple. It is not complicated. If you still rule your life, even if you really faithfully attend church, even if you really know this revelation of God, the Bible, but you don't have the Son, then you don't have life. But if Christ rules your life, 
If you've died to self and given your life to Jesus, if he is your Lord and your Savior, then you have the Son, and therefore you have eternal life. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Paul's words in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Praise be to God for the testimony of the gospel that has gone to work in many of our lives, might be going to work in your life here today. You, many of you who we're praying for, who we love, who we can't force this on you. It's God's work. It's God's time. But you do business with it. Please do business with it. Confess Jesus alone as Savior and Lord. Believe and be saved. Saved from your sin and made a forever part of God's family. Jesus is better than everything else the world or the deceiver is pitching at you. Don't buy the counterfeit Gospels. Trust and rest in Christ alone. May it be so. By His grace and for His glory. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for for this passage, this part of the letter you just remain faithful, God, to give us Holy Scripture, to endure it all these years, to, to bring it forth, to bring it into view, to give me the time to study and to, and to, and to check and, and to slow down, to, to then preach it for, for each of us to be here, whether in person or for those who are ill tuning in from home, that, that we get to hear these words, we get to be moved by them, that, that you are at work. Do your work. Do your work to save many today. Do your work to motivate the saved to testify that we rejoice in these truths and worship you now and forevermore. All glory be to Christ. We love you, God. Hear us now as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.